You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you into the book of Psalms. Um, For the last several weeks, we've been in the book of Psalms, specifically in chapter 119, Um, We're going to go back just a little bit to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. If you don't have a Bible, you should see a blue one somewhere near you, maybe under a chair in front of you. Um, That's our gift to you. And if you know somebody who doesn't have a Bible, that's our gift to them. Take it and give it to them. We want to get a copy of God's Word in as many hands as we possibly can. So if you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. Um, And once you get it, open up to Psalm 73. Bear with me. All right, now I got a timer. Um, I promise I won't. I mean, I can't. I don't think I can. I don't think I'm capable of preaching as long as Jonathan. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> we love him, and he can keep my attention for 50 minutes. I probably cannot keep your attention for 50 minutes. It's a gift he has. I do not. Um, so, Psalm 73, um, and as you open to it, I want to propose what I hope you get out of our sermon, or out of the sermon today, um, and it's this. In our doubt, God listens to us in prayer, is present with us in Christ, and holds our right hand. In doubt, God listens to us in prayer, is present with us in Christ, and holds our right hand. So before we dig into it, um, I just wanted to give you that. I hope that even that stirs up some questions, and I hope that throughout this sermon weekend, we can unpack some of that. As we know from being in Psalm 119 for the last several weeks, um, the Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. These were Jesus's favorite songs to sing, um, and it's actually the most quoted book of any scripture, and even Jesus quotes Psalm, tw- uh, Psalm 22 from the cross. The Psalms teach us how to pray and even what to pray, um, and we'll see that today because we're going to talk about doubt, and doubt is the world kind of teaches us like what you feel is, is, is scripture and is of itself. It's like, I feel that, and I, I can't unfeel that, I don't think. Uh, this must be the truth, and the Psalms actually go, they don't go that way. They actually teach us how to pray those feelings, so that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the Psalms and they are a beautiful expression of anything that we could experience. Um, John Calvin describes the Psalms, and he says, No one will ever in themselves discover a single feeling that is not re- reflected in the mirror of the Psalms. All griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, cares, hopes, anxieties, in short, all those tumultuous agitations of the soul are expressed in them. And yet... Even though we find all these uncomfortable, oftentimes gut-wrenching topics in the Psalms, the Psalms always cross it with the grace of God. Always. We'll also see that today. So that means for us, first of all, the Lord knows that we're going to experience these things. um, And at the same time, he's given us this book by his grace to know how to pray through them. 
The Psalms are broken up into five books. Um, Psalm 73 is the first Psalm in the third book. So even in your Bible, you might see book three, Psalm 73. And it's a wisdom Psalm. Um, That means it gets to the transformed and sanctified life of the Christian. It's going to give us wisdom in the sense that if we were to begin to appropriate it to our lives, we would actually experience the joy that God means to give us. And that's easier said than done. I'll be the first to admit that. Um, But God, as we'll see in this psalm, provides a way for that to even be possible. It is attributed to Asaph. Um, Asaph was a singer. Um, If you thought you were a great singer, David appointed Asaph with only two other Levites to sing at the temple. Um, So this is likely a song he wrote um, as he processed and prayed through his doubt. Um, He wrote a total of 12 psalms. This is the first of 11 consecutive psalms that Asaph wrote. Um, And then he also wrote Psalm 50, which is back a ways. But these are the 11 consecutive psalms. We'll be in the first one of those 11, Psalm 73. So that's the overview. Um, So we'll read it, and and we'll talk about it, and talk about doubt and what it causes. And then um, we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about the cure for doubt. Um, So write this down. We're going to complete these thoughts. Confess, enter, and feel. Confess, enter, and feel. So throughout our time together, we're going to complete those thoughts with one another. So we in Psalm 73, we're going to read 1 through 3, and then we'll pick up in 13 through the end of the psalm in verse 28. A psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and, I, and rebuke every morning. And rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God, Lord God, my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." 
Let's pray together. God, you have a word here for every individual in this room. Remove the temptation to think of somebody else in the room that might need this more than I do this morning. Holy Spirit, remind us of Jesus and how this word is made alive by him and through him. Let all the things you say be heard and all the things that I say be forgotten. Amen. Have you ever experienced doubt? What did you doubt? Who did you doubt? You see, doubt in its simplest form is uncertainty. What have you been uncertain about? You could probably think of a few things just in the last year, um, or year and a half, or who have you been uncertain about? If I were to summarize doubt, doubt is when we cannot comprehend what we know to be true. Doubt is when we cannot comprehend, we cannot connect the dots of what we see and what we know to be true. Uh, my parents are people I've doubted. Um, I have a story. I'll let you into my life a little bit. As a punk kid, I had a friend who lived down the street, and I really wanted to go hang out with my friend down the street, and my mother, in her wisdom, said it was too far and I can't go. Um, and the distance between where I lived and where my friend lived is the distance I would describe as a little bit further than you should go alone as a punk kid. Um, so she said no. And I remember, I remember going, you hate me. Like, you don't like me. And I remember telling my brother, mom hates us. She doesn't care for us. When I know, based on how I even got to this point in my life, that she does, in fact, love me, and she does, in fact, care for me, but I couldn't connect the dots. What I was experiencing... And what I knew to be true did not match. How can you not let me do this and you be a loving, good mother at the same time? And I don't know, now I know that's like ridiculous, but at the time, I couldn't connect the dots. And in that moment, I took to know to what I knew to be true, that my mom, in fact, doesn't hate me and she loves me, compared it to my circumstance and I didn't know what to do with it. And I doubted my mom's love for me. In my mind, those two things could not be true at the same time. That's doubt. Now, at the time, I didn't know it was doubt, but now I do. Um, so doubt is when we take what we know to be true and what we see in the world and go, I must not really know what's happening here. This is what Asaph is saying in the psalm. So he starts actually a little bit abruptly uh, by declaring what we know to be true about God. God is good to his people. And it seems abrupt if you're a husband in this room. It's like when you buy your wife flowers and she kind of goes, what'd you do, right? Like, that seems, seems like you go on. Um, and he's about to tell us, he's about to go on. But Asaph, um, who I would argue is further along in his faith than you and I, um, in fact, he wrote one of Jesus' favorite songs. Um, that's not even on my bucket list. I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't have a desire to write scripture. Um, so I would say, just in that, he's a little bit further along in his faith than you and I, but he experiences doubt, as we do. 
And doubt has the ability to point us to the Father or crush us under the weight of the expectations we have of this life. Doubt has the ability to point us to the goodness of our God. And at the same time, it has the ability to crush us under the weight of expectations we have for this life. So in verse 1, he declares, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then as one pastor, um, I was listening to this, a message about this. He said, if, if you're going to doubt, doubt your doubts. Your doubt speaks softly, but your faith speaks loudly of the goodness of God. And so that's why he starts this way. He starts by faith declaring what is surely you are good. And then he goes on, verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Here's the first of those three thoughts that we want to complete. Confess your doubt. Confess your doubt. No, really, confess your doubt. Asaph confesses that his feet almost slipped. He saw what was going on around him, um, specifically the prosperity of the wicked and how they boast about it, and it actually ended in envy, we'll see. And he saw that and, and compared it to what he knew was true about God and said, my feet almost slipped. I doubt it. Asaph encourages us to confess what is weighing on us. God welcomes our doubt and our skepticism. He's not afraid of it. Um, he knows what to do with it. So if you're a skeptic in the room, um, God invites you to, to be that to him. Last year, as a, as a church, we studied what it looks like to biblically lament. And I don't know about you, but this was really helpful to me that I'm encouraged that the Bible even gives us language for how to confess and talk to the Lord about what's weighing on us. You may relate to this, but in my life, suppressing your feelings was your family's favorite thing to do. I don't know about you, but for me, this was extremely helpful going through the book of Lamentations and even reading and digging into this psalm. God has great love and mercy and welcomes our complaints. Be encouraged. The Lord has already made a way in Christ to fulfill all the deepest longings of your heart. He has made a way for us to have access to him in prayer through his son. Confession to, and then in turn, a conversation with the Lord, we believe is extremely powerful. You have unfettered access to God, to the God of the universe. Think about that. Whatever you're frustrated with, upset about, experience depression or anxiety over, God has already purchased to redeem. And he wants to talk to you about it. Whether it's secret sin or like we see here, doubt in his goodness, he offers patience, grace in your confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9. You might say, um, I don't even know how to start to confess what is weighing on me. Um, well, I'd say start there. God, I don't even know how to talk to you about this. Help me. Um, 
Because confession is scary. If you're a non-believer in this room, um, we as believers know something to be true that, that this world doesn't teach you, and that's that confession isn't the end of it. Confession isn't where it stops. Once, once it's out there, whatever that is, that's not where it ends. It's terrifying to know what happens after it's out there, whatever it is that you need to confess. So where do we muster up the courage to do something scary like confessing what is true? There's forgiveness. For the Christian, we can approach confession without fear because there's forgiveness on the other side. For the Christian, we can approach confession without fear because there's forgiveness on the other side. There's grace and forgiveness and an unlimited supply of it. Is there hurt that may result in confession? Of course there is. Is confession hard? Yes. Can it make people upset? It has. But we know that if we are in Christ, there is healing and forgiveness on the other side. Friend, if you're in a spot where the Lord has been tugging at you to say the thing that's been true of you, and you've lost sleep of it over it, then you have not experienced the eternal forgiveness that God offers in his, in, his, in his Son. If you can't confess, then that just means we have not experienced the eternal forgiveness God offers us in Jesus. He has purchased every one of those confessions at a great cost. So, confess your doubt. Why? Because their forgiveness awaits. He is eager and ready to comfort you in it. Then, starting in verse 3, he, through the next nine verses, which um, I skipped for the sake of my own attention span and reading, but I encourage you to, to read that, he, he goes in great detail about what he sees. Um, from the pride that these people have that he's seeing to them boasting in it. And this leads Asaph into great despair and depression. He begins to be envious. Now, envy, um, Tim Keller in his devotional Songs of Jesus, I recommend everybody buy that. This is not, he didn't pay me to say that. Um, It's been one of the most transformative devotionals is like, if you're not excited about reading the Psalms, you will be. Buy it, I promise you'll love it. But when he addresses this passage, here's how he puts it. The psalmist confesses that he is in the grips of envy. To envy is to want someone else's life. It's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do, and God has not been fair. This spiritual self-pity, which forgets your sin and what you truly deserve from God, drains all the joy out of your life, making it impossible to enjoy what you have. The power of envy is such that it made even the Garden of Eden feel like it wasn't enough. No wonder the psalmist almost slipped and turned from God. Have you felt this? I have. My wife and I have been married for seven years. Um, I asked her for permission to talk about this, but like many others, battle with infertility. 
we have been fortunate to have you guys. God has given us a community of grace that we wouldn't be able to navigate this without you. And it's hard to not envy when I see some of the beautiful children in this room. And we've gotten better at it. I hope that you've We've even had conversations with some of you that we want to be better at it, celebrating this with you. But it's crushing. Envy has great power. Think about it. In envy, we're saying, God, the life that you gave me, I don't like it. I want another one. I think this is an invitation for me and for you to repent and to receive eternal life in him. For Asaph, his doubt turned to envy and even confusion. He said, what's the point? He becomes depressed over the thought of living a righteous life. What's the point anymore? We see this in verse 13 through 15. It says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would betray the generation of your children. I just want to stop here for a second and ask, have you ever looked at your life and just gone, what's the point? Have you ever been so discontent with this life, that you cry out to God with this question? Have you ever been so bitter about a relationship, job, a pandemic, and just said, what's the point of all of this? Well, the Bible gives us language for this. We see this example in Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Satan is going to put a sickness on Job and in an, in a, his goal was for Job to curse God. In verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? At this point, he was covered in scales and that Satan had given him. And Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. His wife tells him that. Do you hear the, the discontentment, the bitterness? If you've been there, you know that is one of the lowest points you could possibly get. And also, that is where God means to show you the most amount of grace. See, if you've created expectations of this life what this life ought to look like or what you have, must have in this life, and you're one of the have-nots, bitterness, depression, and discontentment are the result every time. Not only that, we become very confused 
Um, Asaph takes inventory of all the things that he sees. And then in verse 16, he says, When I sought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That word wearisome, you might find in other translations to, to say painful, difficult, troublesome, hopeless. He starts by saying that God is good, surely is good to Israel, and then he looks at the world around him and he cannot connect the dots. And as a result, hopelessness. What are you currently confused about? Um, is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it um, a spouse? Is it anxiety about your kids? Is it family strife you're trying to navigate? What is it? And when you think about how to even begin to understand that thing, do you feel hopeless? As my good friend um, once said in a sermon, the Bible talks about it, so we, we got to talk about it. Um, it begs another question, where do you go or what do you do to try to find understanding? Is it another coffee date, another clarifying conversation? Is it more research about the job? Is it reading more articles online? Is it scrolling through Facebook? Is it seeking advice from others? These aren't bad ways to necessarily go about finding understanding, but we have to ask ourselves, where do we go to find understanding? The buzzword is clarity. clarity everybody wants clarity, um, especially in the last year and a half. It's been uncertain times, right? So where do you go for it? Where do you go to obtain it? When we come to this point, where do we go? So in verse 16, he's hopeless in trying to understand so where does he find hope and clarity? Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Oops. Dang it. Never saw that. We're good. Enter the presence of God. This is the second thought from the, from the three at the beginning. In a world that teaches us that in our confusion and doubt, uh, we must retreat, we must go find ourselves, uh, which really means you're, you've found yourself and you're just running from it. But it's hard to go against the grain here, isn't it? How do we keep this train of faith on the tracks? We enter the presence of God. He has given us his church and his word in order for this to be possible. So every Sunday we gather, we sing. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. I never feel bad for no bass player uh, because I get to... Oh, well, sorry. I get to experience with you guys and worship with you guys and um, be led in that. We sing, we, we listen to a guy talk, we listen to the expounding of God's word, and we sing again, we enjoy fellowship every Sunday. Why? Well, I think part of that answer is so that we would experience his presence in those things together. We are a people who gather to remind each other of the grace of God in our lives. And here's the fun part. It never gets old. We're going to do it again next week. 
the same thing. And then our pastor is going to go on a sabbatical or on vacation, and then we're going to do it without him. We don't do this because our pastor's here or I'm here or there's, a, there's people leading worship on the stage. None of our presence matters, actually. It's God's presence for the reason that we gather. So, does that excite you? Or is it just part of the mundane? When I say we're going to do this again next week, is your response like, yeah, I know, we do this every week? Or do you get excited? How do you even measure that? You know how to measure that. You don't have to set an alarm for your children on Christmas Day. You just don't. Um, I experienced this recently. We haven't gone on vacation for a while, but I couldn't even sleep. We, we were flying out to Cancun the next morning, and I fell asleep at 2, got up at 4, and functioned as if I got a solid 8. <laughs> Best 8 hours ever. <laughs> In the simplest way I could put it, do you need to set an alarm to experience the presence of God? I know it sounds silly to say, but what would it take for our, our excitement to gather with the people of God to look like that? You may not have gotten up this morning and thought, I'm going to go experience the presence of God today. But that changes the way we think about it, doesn't it? What we're doing right now isn't part of the mundane. It's what we're going to be doing for eternity. He also gives us his word. Um, I don't know about you, but reading Psalm 119 over the last several weeks has kind of rekindled my like, excitement for God's word. I didn't do the homework every time. Sorry. Um, I hope you probably haven't either, let's be honest. But, <laughs> but it's a sweet reminder that this book he's given us is how we listen to him. When we feel hopeless in seeking understanding, his word gives us hope. We see that in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. His word doesn't expire. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. His word guides us. We read in Psalm 119 that his word's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Christian, are you confused? Instead of the next clarifying conversation, have you thought about going to God's word? In your confusion, do you tend to only go to God insofar as he's the last resort? My prayer is that our church would be a people that goes to God in his word. He means to encourage, give light to, and bring hope to, bring clarity to his people through his word. So enter the presence of God through his people, through his word. When Asaph entered the sanctuary of God, he felt resolution. When we are experiencing doubt and confusion, we need to run to the Father. We see this, um, you know the story, Luke 15, the prodigal son. The young, I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, the younger son says, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance, quite literally. And he gives it to him, and he goes and spends it on wild living and prostitutes and 
And he kind of comes to himself. He realizes that this life he thought he wanted actually wasn't that satisfactory, and it's actually fleeting, and, well, frankly, you run out of money. And he realized that the presence of the Father is the only way to have life. So he runs home, and his father meets him. That's encouraging, isn't it? The Father will meet you. Every time. Not only does he meet us, the end of that story is he throws a party. So, I mean, he rejoices in his sons and daughters coming back to him. So maybe you've been living a life devoted to Christ and his finished work on the cross, and it's been hard. You may have been laboring in Christ your whole life, and you're like Asaph, and you don't see the point. First, we confess these things. We enter his presence in the confusion. And we feel for his comforting hand. In verse 18 through 22, he remembers the end of those who are far from God. The wicked will be destroyed. The one thing that's abundantly clear to Asaph here is their end. And that's eternal separation from God. He even confesses his own ability to be at odds with God. Um, He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. This invites us to think about the fact that for the Christian, we always remember who we were. Paul is great at this. Uh, Paul isn't a guy you want at your cookout. I mean, unless you really enjoy being reminded how sinful you are. I've got a couple examples. Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And by the way, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Thanks, Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you might go, you might think of somebody else, right? And such were some of you. Dang, Paul, what's your point? He goes on, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As Christians, we're actually okay with somebody reminding us of who we were. As Christians, we are okay with somebody going, remember? remember? And we go, yeah, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy that God would save me? Have you met me? And Asaph says here, even though living a righteous life for you is hard, even though I'm capable of being a beast towards you, he goes on, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. So not only does he know the end of the wicked, He knows the end of himself who is in Christ. The end for me is you're going to bring me to glory. We know with certainty 
that those far from God will end up eternally separated from him in hell. But we know that those who, are he, who he is near to, he will receive the glory and we will rejoice for him, with him forever. He goes on, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire that isn't of you. What would our lives look like if this was true of us? If we lived a life fully devoted to the things of God? Right? What are you currently excited about, pick fights about? What are you currently excited about that won't even exist in heaven? What flag are you waving? Be honest. If you, if you can't be honest, as the people around you, they'll be honest with you. What flag am I waving? What you value most will be visible to others, and even if you are blind to them, someone can tell you what's true about you. Maybe you're not waving a flag, but you're looking for the flag somebody else is waving. Is it bad to be excited about those things? Maybe, maybe not. That's not the point. The point is that some of those things that you're excited about won't even make it out of this country, let alone to glory. Psalm 73 invites us to put the flag down. If it's not declaring what will be eternally true in glory, put it down. This is one of the values of our church. Um, we strive for the thing that we want to fight and die for is the gospel. And that actually allows us to see other things and not take them as seriously or even look at ourselves and not take ourselves very seriously. So if you've been around us for a while, you've probably heard this, but we take the gospel so seriously that it allows us to not take ourselves very seriously. When we have our eyes set on things that are above and not the things of this earth, Christ-likeness is the result. He becomes famous. He gets all the attention, not us. God wants you and I to know that the best thing about this life is not this life. There's a better, more eternal life awaiting us. And so, verse 26 through 28 my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful for you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. These last few verses sum up the gospel, don't they? My flesh fails, but thank God I'm not in charge of getting myself out of that. He is my strength. He is my portion. He is what I have when I have nothing. That's what it means for God to be your portion. When we're dead in our sin, thirst for living water, hunger for the bread of life, God's our portion. If you're a Christian, you've experienced what this feels like, right? And if you're not a believer, this is an invitation to experience the same thing. Maybe the first step for you to take in faith is to Ask somebody else how God's been their portion. Because make no mistake about it, those far from him, from him will perish. Verse 27. But those near to him have eternal life. He has made a way for us to be near to him in Christ. 
He is the only son. He sent his only son to be with us so we would know that we are never alone. So feel for his comforting hand in Christ. He sent him so that we will never doubt his goodness. When we question God's goodness, we can look at Christ and go, I know what good looks like. When we feel weary and burdened, we know what rest looks like because we know what Christ looks like. When we feel confused and what it's like, and we have a lack of clarity of who God wants us to be, we look at Jesus. He wants us to look like him. When we look at our situation and want another one, we look at Jesus who lived a life he truly didn't deserve. Died a death that you and I deserve and rose victoriously on the third day. God's proof of his goodness towards us is clear in his son and it ends in what? Mission. Right? That I may tell of all your works. How does this story end? It ends with us being brought to glory and to be with Christ forever. The most glorious thing about this life is the life that's to come. In his presence, every tear will be wiped away. Think about that. What are you upset about? What are you sad about? Every tear. Every sorrow will be gone. The effects of sin will be no more and we will be with him celebrating this great victory forever and ever. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to wonder if you're out there watching over us, but we know with certainty that you're with us in Christ. You left eternity in the form of a servant that we would know you are for us and near to us because of your son. I pray that if there's anyone in this room that, that hasn't beheld this good news, that you would begin softening those hearts right now. We confess that we forget that our feet slip. We forget and we doubt your goodness towards us. Help us turn from these things that cause this and turn towards you. Holy Spirit, remind us of the goodness of the Father. We are hopeless if you don't do this. In Jesus' name, we pray and believe. Amen.